thank you for joining us on the Therapy Cable podcast. What you're about to listen to are conversations and interviews on some of the most crucial and important topics in the behavioral and mental health space. It is our mission to help remove the stigmas attached to mental health, psychology, and addiction, one recording at a time. Dr. Esangar Jadaki, if you have any concerns, if you have any questions, comments, etc., you would like to share, please feel free to do so. You can uh, post it on our channel and um, as a comment, and I can address those. I will get those in front of me, and I will try to address them. So uh, today, what we would like to focus on is the role of uh, uh, codependency in increasing stress, uh, especially as it happens around the holiday time. Um, you know, around holidays, stress can get to us, and then uh, with codependency, with more codependency, we will not have a good time, you know, going through this stressful situation. And in fact, it increases our stress and if we can uh, move from codependency to self-differentiation, it uh, allows us to reduce stress in our lives and live life in, much, in a much more peaceful way. So, in order to do so, it, we really have to understand uh, codependency and also the concept of self-differentiation and how they differ from each other, and then how to move from codependency, codependency to self-differentiation. So <clears throat> let's start with that. What is really codependency? And uh, as a um, general term, we also understand uh, that uh, codependency is unhealthy. It's regarded as a, a quite unhealthy level of uh, connecting and uh, depending and attaching oneself to other people, uh, and at times even objects, but mostly human beings. And uh, even perhaps sometimes animals, uh, pets. Uh, but uh, uh, what is it really? What what is unhealthy about it? What is that uh, uh, function of codependency? So basically, I can give you an example to quite you know clearly understand the dilemma here or the dysfunction, if you will, and the ineffective uh, nature of codependency. So, usually, um, you know, you may hear something like or observe some kind of an interaction between people, whether it is between yourself and people who are in your lives, uh, or uh, you see it between uh, two different people or even multiple people uh, within your circles. Um, and that's, it goes something like one person tells the other person that, uh, you know, uh, what you did made me sad and or angry or upset and uh, so forth and uh, beyond just expressing this fact uh, simple observation and self-expression they also engage in certain strategies it could be verbal nonverbal interactional strategies 
that make the relationship very much conditional uh, and contingent, uh, especially as it relates to one person's feelings uh, compared to another person's actions. So basically, uh, the follow-up on what I just mentioned to you earlier uh, in terms of expression of you know one's pain that is linked to another person's behavior would be uh, a certain condition that is now put on the relationship meaning that a certain demand you know this expression moves into a demanding position with something like you know you better stop doing what you're doing or you know, a, a certain punishing action will take place uh, or a certain unpleasant event will occur, such as, um, you know, I, I could say something like this to my partner saying, you know, it, it pisses me off whenever you talk about, um, you know, my in-laws and you always talk negatively, etc. And if you can't stop talking negatively about them, then uh, we don't have a good relationship, then we don't have a marriage, then I can't love you, or um, I can't respect you, or I cannot, um, or I won't talk positively about your, your, you know, family and your parents or siblings, etc. So that's that condition that follows the first expression of the pain experience. So now generally, I think most of you probably uh, would think this is a good thing <laughs> or would think that's a kind of a, just kind of common language and common strategy and common human need and it's acceptable and generally people engage in these types of um, really conditional negotiations and it's really acceptable. It's just a uh, daily common experience and but that goes to show how ingrained codependency is within relationships because if you think about it you know there is no necessity for this kind of a contingency there is a solution out there instead of contingency and conditional living and uh, uh, responding to one another and that solution is called self-differentiation. So, uh, what does it look like? You know, it's, it's kind of, first of all, understand that and define that and then compare and contrast. So, self-differentiation, first of all, is more or less defined by a person's ability to accept one's self, their own real internal world and their own unique way of being in this uh, world and so basically both internal and external uh, existence uh, preferences biases choices as well as respecting other people's preferences biases choices experiences and being able to get along with them so rather than um, jumping to polar opposites of the spectrum of interactional uh, effectiveness meaning to, or ineffectiveness in this case, 
gravitating toward one pole, which would look like um, disowning the other person, completely separating oneself from the other person and, and never wanting to see them again. Uh, and the other pole, uh, complete opposite of the spectrum, which would be really a very passive uh, giving in to the wishes and uh, needs and desires to the, of the partner and losing oneself in the relationship. Uh, instead of jumping to one of these two polar opposite poles, a self-differentiated person remains in the relationship, doesn't completely lose themselves and give in, and also doesn't completely forget about the relationship and get out. So they're willing to live with the discomfort, they're, but because there is a benefit, not because they're masochistic and they want to hurt themselves and they enjoy pain, but they, because there's a greater benefit to have. And that greater benefit is growth and maturity and long-term gratification versus short-term satisfaction. Meaning that, you know, if I, if I um, act from a self-differentiated position, then I, my response to my partner would be uh, quite um, respectful, assertive, firm, but also understanding and care. So let me give you this example. If my partner tells me, you know, the way you talk about my, uh, or my partner tells me something about my in-laws, their in-laws, which is basically say, my parents, and I don't like it because it's negative. So rather than coming from this codependent, co uh, contingent and conditional perspective where I would tell them, oh, you know, you better stop or we don't have a relationship, a self-differentiated response would go something like, okay, um, you know, I see that you have your opinion about my parents. You uh, don't like the way they clean their home. You don't like their environment, their living standard, and um, it doesn't match you. And I get that. You're a different person. You grew up differently. Your standards differ from my parents' standards. And, um, and you're entitled you're to your own preference and bias and choice and you may like it or not like it. Now, I personally um, like it. I, I personally like my parents and the way they live. I respect them. I appreciate them. Um, I don't get involved. I don't pass judgment on how they live, whether they you know, are organized or clean up their home or not, and, and live a germ-free life, uh, whatnot. Uh, don't pass those judgments on them. I kind of stay away from that type of a judgment. I relate to them in a, from a different perspective. Uh, so I can't really agree with you or disagree with you. Um, I may be leaning toward more disagreeing uh, with your negative judgment or more the focus on only this aspect of my parents' existence and relationship and not looking at uh, their other aspects of, you know, being loving, caring, happy, um, very responsible individuals, intellectual and this and that. Um, but 
so be it. You know, you have your opinion. I'm not sure if you change your opinion or not. Um, I can acknowledge that you have your opinion, but uh, don't expect me to agree with you or get on the get on the same bandwagon with with you. Uh, because literally, my my focus is different. You know, and that's it. You know, I would be a self-differentiated response. I would not make the longevity and continuation of my relationship with my spouse conditional or contingent upon her changing her behavior or her opinion or her likes and dislikes. I would not do that. Um, I would just acknowledge it and move on. Meaning, that's that's what we call it self-differentiation. Like two entities come to a discussion of an event, they recognize that event, they recognize their differences, and they move on. They, and they, again, they don't completely zap out of the relationship and discard the relationship. And they don't also, against their own personal wishes, give in to the other person. So another uh, example for a codependent response would be something like, you know, for fear of upsetting uh, the partner and the spouse, or uh, the fear of perhaps uh, the, the, the upset uh, negative spouse leaving the relationship or finding even further fault, not only with my parents, but also with me, uh, quickly agreeing with them and say, yeah, I have always hated this about my parents. They're so dirty. You're right. And then how dare they? Instead of, I hated it about them, and you know what? This just sucks, and you're completely right, and I'm, you know, at least somebody understands me. And if it is fake, it's uh, problematic. If it is not fake, if that's truly how a person feels, they truly have hated that aspect about their own parents, okay, so be it. Not they happen to be on the same page. But they're not changing and faking and pretending they're agreement and uh, and uh, basically like-mindedness with their spouse because they're afraid if I don't do that my spouse will leave me. So um, now that's maybe difficult for many people to digest and grasp in terms of well how can I you know just kind of live uh, side by side with a partner that I completely disagree with or we have different preferences, we're not on the same page. And that really brings up an underlying core issue, the hidden problem with codependency, and that's why it's called codependency, meaning uh, why not? You know, the, the reason that a person would go so far as to state that their requirement for their happiness in a relationship is particularly similarity between themselves and their partner, that's very much a very highly dependent when what we call a when we call an enmeshed um, uh, type of an existence, meaning that um, a persons likes and dislikes, preferences need to 
match that of another person for them to feel gratification. So rather than uh, appreciating their own individual unique values in and of themselves, they are incapable, if you will, or unwilling to appreciate their preferences in their singularity or by themselves. These values that they harbor have to match other people's values and vice versa. So the matching becomes much more important than their preference itself. And that's that. Um, it's kind of contrary to how a human being, what a human being is, uh, you know, exists for. If you think about it, we, we are not conjoined twins, neither physically nor psychologically, with other human beings, with, especially not with a spouse, or even again, children or parents. You're not, you know, joined at the hips. That's not how we come to this world and leave this world. We, the whole purpose and, again, nature and reality, it's the reality of the facts of human existence is that every human being, at least for 99.99% of the population, except for real conjoined twins or conjoined siblings, uh, most people in the world are born into this world as as single entities. You know, they're one person, they're not two people. So a person is born into this world as one person and leaves this world as one person. So literally, both in terms of this psyche and the body, and in fact, even the soul, if you believe in that, um, we really fulfill our purpose and uh, match the reality of our existence if we realize that our life from birth to death is defined by our singularity or uh, soul entity, right? There's one person uh, who is responsible for himself or herself, who experiences the world for himself or herself, as one individual with both a physical uh, skin, if you will, as well as a psychological skin. There is one skin around us that basically contains this body and separates us from members of the society and the environment, as well as psychologically, a psychological skin, skin that we uh, liken to more or less our self-identity, self-concept, self-worth specifically the self-concept, and that is also separate from other people's self-concept. So within that, we have the right and opportunity and the safety and protection of being unique and, and having our own unique composition of feelings, of preferences that very well are diverse from other people, and they are not contingent upon matching to other people's the desires and preferences and biases. They're supposed to be quite uh, different and diverse and basically very much, and that was, that's what makes it a unique proposition, a unique composition of all these millions of likes and dislikes and preferences and that basically make up the identity of this person. If we come to believe in its right to function as that soul entity, 
and function along with other soul entities on a unitary human beings around us, then we understand the truly the, the necessity for self-differentiation and the fact that we have to let go of codependency. A codependent relationship, you know, has only a limited benefit, and that is more or less as, if you will, a crutch or a scaffolding, a support system, while we are immature and little and weak and need the support. So as infants that we come into this world and kids, toddlers, uh, you know, teenagers, up until really around 16, 17, 18, maybe maximum 20, 25. That's it. Because at 25 years of age, maximum, uh, all our faculties and aspects of our existence have grown to its full extent, whether it is cognitive abilities, emotional intelligence, interpersonal skills, social skills, uh, brain growth, body growth, um, physiology, hormones, everything has is functional, developed, it's working in its optimal capacity. Certainly we are missing experience and wisdom and um, you know, uh, resilience to some extent and perhaps some certain positions and uh, social values and like authority or uh, career and so forth. But otherwise we are quite capable as fully developed individuals. So if we are such human beings that functions this way, function this way, we only need the scaffolding and support and uh, crutch from, the, from birth to right around about the age of, let's say, uh, 18. And that's probably the reason why uh, age of majority, minority versus majority has probably been determined at 18. Uh, because generally people have developed enough of all these categories that we mentioned, enough resources internally to, to simply exist as a single independent human being and achieve anything they want in life. So if, if that's true, then uh, we have to be able to also outgrow this scaffolding, to kind of shed that skin and or that support uh, network around us and rise above it. And which means that when it comes to specifically relationships, we have to be able to transition from a codependent relationship uh, and, and uh, concept of being in relationship with other people to a non codependent or healthy interdependent as well as uh, what we call a self-differentiated uh, state of mind and of relating to others. And as a result, we will really end up benefiting immensely from self-differentiation because what happens is that it provides, you know, respect for diversity, respect for partners, for people in our lives, it gives them some of both my, ourselves and themselves a space and time and uh, opportunity to uh, grow independently and kind of mm, safeguard and maintain our unique uh, individual selves while uh, still uh, remaining in a meaningful, healthy connection with others, which we call relationships, and 
uh, also promotes a fertile ground uh, for um, further development of and strengthening of unique propositions and uh, characteristics. And, um, and also, I would say, provides for a quite empowering um, strengthening of each individual, you know, because basically helps the confidence and the, um, uh, and the self-effective, the effectiveness and the self-efficacy of each individual to feel that, uh, you know, they're being validated in their unique journey and they're not being rejected or uh, abandoned or shunned. So, so there's less of an obstacle, if you will, rather than more. So that's kind of the paradoxical benefit. Like people get into codependent relationship because they desire the approval, the validation, the um, uh, that support and the, the uh, communion or the uh, company and, and the constant reflection and mirroring. Uh, however, they're actually in reality not providing it because there's a huge demand on similarity versus a self-differentiated, a truly self-differentiated recognition of oneself and others would allow for a true sense of validation and support and acknowledgement and um, uh, and, and continued uh, mirroring and uh, and ref uh, healthy reflection and therefore uh, a call and, and a uh, um, uh, and a and an approach and a very self approach for others to confirm who they are in themselves and by themselves and again learning how to respect this proposition where people can be unique while connected you know they can be unique while appreciative they can be unique while uh, helpful they can be unique while caring it's very counterintuitive but only because our cultural upbringing and values are generally formed in such a way that people are not informed and educated about these more uh, deeper psychological values. So in, most people are just busy living a life. You know, they don't have the luxury of really examining and analyzing their lives and getting to the root uh, causes and issues, understanding their, their lives and what, what is happening to them, you know, the source causes of some of their anxiety and uh, mood fluctuations and failures and successes and impact they have on in relationships or how they are being influenced and impacted by others. So therefore, the uh, most of people's attention really goes toward these more immediate needs, uh, where people are kind of eager to solve problems now versus live with problems and find long-term solutions. So over time, they would gra gradually transition into a more peaceful life. They want peacefulness right now. And that's part of the actual problem. And uh, so uh, going back to very much contrasting codependency with self-differentiation, 
we see that with more self-differentiation, even though it is harder to implement in the beginning, with more self-differentiation, we will have a lot more, uh, you know, both individual as well as collectivistic, collective uh, benefits for everyone. And uh, with more codependency, we will have a lot more rigidity, a lot more uh, contingency, a lot more unhealthy dependence on one another. And basically, it stifles growth and development and healthy function. And uh, ultimately, uh, creates a bind between people, where people are, if they feel that bind, that they can't get out of it, such, such sense of imprisonment, um, you know, versus liberation and freedom. And um, so, now when it comes to holidays and stress, uh, we will have a lot more on our plates to deal with through stress through, through holidays. You know, there's there are time uh, deadlines that we have to meet. There uh, we are coming to the end of the month to the uh, culmination of, let's say, especially now festive holidays, like Christmas and New Year, and ending a fiscal year or you know, calendar year, and then beginning a new one. And uh, certain uh, New Year resolutions, goals that people have set up for themselves. Psychologically, there is a huge transition from kind of the old to the new. And therefore, uh, throughout the multiple tasks, goals, deadlines people have set for themselves and others, especially with, you know, let's say more complex families where multiple people are involved and multiple needs and desires need to be met then uh, that tendency to want to make things happen uh, leads to a little bit more of an immediate uh, engagement in codependent relationships, making things more contingent and conditional, uh, getting more upset about uh, things that don't go one's way despite having set those expectations and uh, things kind of going broke more often than not. Uh, instead of getting uh, getting fixed. So as a result, the uh, it's added uh, demand of, of the stressful events and deadlines to meet and goals to obtain and achieve, uh, our tolerance is reduced. And we have uh, much more probability to kind of develop a short fuse, impulsively react, um, rely heavily on our feelings, in the moment because we got upset in this situation or that situation and therefore lead you know take that feelings of uh, whether it is you know nervous anxious upset agitated disappointed lonely whatnot to the next level of some kind of, some kind of the meaningfulness like uh, oh okay because now this is happening and it is around this important holiday season therefore it means that uh, you know, something drastic needs to happen in my life, like a questioning, let's say, a relationship, a major decision that a person has made, or kind of trying away for wanting to um, follow through with a major decision that they have planned for a while. And suddenly, based on these momentary feelings, develop certain doubts uh, about going through with those, uh, with those decisions. So, uh, we need to realize that we 
literally have to uh, rely more heavily on our uh, really built-in values such as patience and tolerance and again uh, a acceptance of diversity basically freedom you know respect for diversity respect for people being literally different not bad not good not worse not better but just different like equal but separate equal but different and that's a very important I would say uh, value and virtue that every human being possesses but is downplayed you know we are kind of downplaying the value and worth of mm -hmm. these aspects of society and uh, human function so during this uh, specifically during this stressful time we need to uh, focus even more on these values have more patience have more tolerance almost forcefully uh, leading ourselves toward that and I guarantee you that you see a lot more benefit coming out of this uh, so now we have getting some questions Lindsay asks what do you do when you go through a traumatic event and can't move forward can't get images out of your head and blaming yourself nothing helps except alcohol good question Lindsay thank you for posting that question and basically there are two components of this. First of all, uh, what do you do with traumatic events and, uh, and seemingly can't move forward? And the second part that's really uh, links to the first part and it also leads us to the solution is the problem with, with getting images out of one's head. And, uh, and you can't really forcefully do that and you're at a loss of tools, techniques of doing that uh, and, and the only thing that some people, at least in this case, is stated that nothing would help except perhaps in this case alcohol. And I would bring up other examples that many other people may say, well, perhaps, you know, other drugs, perhaps uh, sex, you know, perhaps uh, gambling, perhaps um, even just compulsive, let's say, sleeping, you know, uh, or even eating. You know, uh, we know that uh, like eating disorders, like bulimia, is associated with his emotional dysregulation. When a person feels emotionally activated, uh, they immediately, uh, they kind of even, even dissociate. They, they really shift into a much more, um, uh, I would say, physiological uh, gratification. And same thing with alcohol. The, the, the body shifts into this immediate tool that has taught us that listen you want to check out drink me right alcohol has taught us that you want to forget about things nothing else works for you i guarantee you i can uh, knock you out right so is there, there is that relationship going on between drugs and all these activities as i mentioned to you especially when they're done compulsively and uh um, you know, very frequently and basically relentlessly, um, uh, and our brain. You know, it, it, these uh, gambling, um, sex addiction, uh, alcohol, drugs, uh, eating, uh, over eating, or even purging, even uh, you know, restricting eating. Uh, all those uh, compulsive behaviors they have 
taught us that there's they they come to our help when nothing else helps because and that's the particular dilemma right that's where the powerlessness of uh, at the core of addiction needs at our attention that literally this is a disease due to that sense of powerlessness that a person feels that they can they're, they're powerless toward this overwhelming compulsory compulsory uh, behavior so um, what do we do well uh, you have to uh, really break things down it's very complex phenomenon but in this case I'm just gonna stick to let's say one of the things that you can do and uh, in this case as uh, the example shows with traumatic images uh, not being able to get those out of one's head um, the idea here is that yes and no. So we have to recognize that, yeah, generally you can't forcefully get it out of your head, right? But, and, uh, but leaning on alcohol only as the only solution is part of the problem rather than solution. So this goes to show how rigid a person's lifestyle has become, where basically their only go-to type of a behavior is drinking alcohol to blackout. Um, and, and the same person would very likely, I bet you, uh, in, you know, uh, high amount of money, that they would very likely, whether it's a thousand dollars or a million dollars, doesn't really matter, but it, I can bet that this same person would say that they have been through this, uh, blackouts, they have been able to, uh, you know, shut down these images, so I think these images to um, using alcohol for a while, but not forever, right? It hasn't been a long-term solution for them. It only is a short-term solution, and therefore, also it becomes more addictive and more damaging and more destructive, because they see that they have to repetitively engage in this, uh, you know, alcohol-consuming behavior in order to shut down those images, but the body cannot handle it over time. The liver breaks down, the brain cells die, you know, the other the cardiovascular problems, and again, physical problems develop, and therefore, uh, really, it's not a good long-term solution. Yeah, short-term, it works, and that's why we gravitate to, toward them. It allows us for a while to use this technique of basically you know, drinking alcohol, and uh, part of the other reason that it works is because um, it provides a temporary solution until we are distracted by another life event. And then it fools us into thinking that it actually even works over time. Because let's say we get drunk and then we uh, forget about these images and then we are distracted by some life event. We have to take care of that for a while. Then again, the images pop up. Then we drown ourselves into alcohol again and then uh, you know drown these images and then some life event happens and we're busy with that then again then after a few months after a few years we engage in this alcohol consumption again and this repeats itself for probably a decade or two uh, but literally after you know trying that a few times we have to come to the conclusion that this is a terrible long-term solution so and, and it's kind of to be uh, expected from this question too that the person realizes that there must be something else, right? Am I missing something? 
Isn't there something else? I'm just alcohol. So there's an inherent uh, covert recognition that this is not the best way. And, and you're right. Asking this question, you're right that recognizing that there must be other tools available. But it requires openness. I mean, I can list 10 different tools right now. But as long as a person doesn't have openness to trying and experimenting and experiencing these new tools, there is no way out. So what I would suggest is to really uh, be open to try, be open to learn. So, uh, and, and, because, and the reason there are multiple tools is because people are different. One person leans toward learning things auditorily, listening to things. Another person wants to see things to learn. Another person wants to read things. Another person learns within and uh, a relationship that by being guided by another individual, by a coach, or by a specialist. Another person learns by themselves. So, but there are many tools. Some of the examples I can give is uh, distraction, uh, kind of a almost very routine religious distraction, uh, meaning refocusing, reshaping our attention toward pleasant images, like flooding our system with all kinds of positive images and uh, experiences. Another one is uh, something called EMDR, eye desensitization, um, uh, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, has uh, provided good track record for dealing with trauma. Another one is called biofeedback, which is basically um, uh, a means of using our own bodies and teaching our own body to um, develop different neural pathways uh, within our system and refocus on that is um, uh, at times there's some something called ECT or TMS. Um, those are more of uh, uh, quite medical, uh, you know, uh, modalities that are used on the brain. Um, the CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, has at times shown good progress. Um, EMDR, um, I mentioned that, I'm sorry, DBT, um, which is basically a dialectical behavioral therapy. It has multiple strategies. It takes about 16 weeks for a person to go through, and literally they learn how to um, develop new images, shut down these um, you know, traumatic images, so I would suggest, Nancy, that if you're interested or someone that you think would be interested, first develop an open-mindedness, open-mindedness toward trying, experimenting new different modalities, researching, believing that there is a solution out there. You're not the only one. Many people have had this experience. I personally have had traumatic experiences in my life and at certain phases and stages in my growth, I have gone through these horrible times where I couldn't get certain images out of my mind. But over time, I noticed that through growth and development and kind of literally maturity of emotions and thoughts and way of conceptualizing, experiencing, interpreting, reacting to the people and environment around myself, my brain learned how to overcome those images by itself. So the solution is out there. The first step is to um, be open-minded. The second step is to do research on them. The third step is to try them. 
one at a time and until you find which one works for you. Just like many people, uh, let's say they want to travel, uh, they try different vehicles. One person, you know, drives cars and he falls in love with them and just wants to travel around the world in, in automobile. Other person may just want to fly only and not drive at all. Another person may love to sail around the world or, or take a boat and, you know, uh, other people love bicycling or, or uh, taking a motorcycle, if you know. How do you know unless you try that? And you have to try to see which one you don't like to guide you to the ones that kind of narrow down on the things that you do like. That's just life. That's what it is. If life is trial and error and learning. So next question I have is here. And again, thanks, Lindsay, for asking this question. I hope I was able to answer it. And again, if uh, we're bringing up these questions, you guys don't get the full answer, please post it. I will go through them. I will respond online. Uh, Eternal Rhapsody asks, I like it when my girlfriend gives me a, a divisive look. Um, and I don't understand why my heart skips a beat. But X thinks it's how I try to regain control. Uh, any insight. Okay. And then there's a follow-up question by Lindsay again. So can a traumatic event lead to addiction? Um, so let me quickly answer Lindsay back because she is kind of related to what I was discussing. And very briefly, uh, yes, I, we know that uh, actually the one of the core issues, um, you know, that is uh, discussed within addiction treatment is uh, trauma. So uh, perhaps 80% or more of people who are addicted, uh, their history is full of what we call adverse childhood experiences, especially specific trauma, such as sexual, physical, uh, you know, events happening, emotional trauma happening in their lives. Uh, not always PTSD, um, but, uh, you know, it could be PTSD as well. Um, so, basically, um, some kind of a complex, more uh, well-known as complex trauma, that um, uh, linked to addiction. So, really, addiction is more of a masking uh, strategy uh, that has developed. It's a compulsive, very much, almost really just obsessive compulsive uh, dependence on external uh, substances and, and sometimes also processes, internal processes uh, that uh, that help a person to simply escape reality uh, and, um, and, and escape into an alternate reality uh, where they don't have to feel the pain uh, because they don't have the tools to face that pain. And trauma is pain, right? So a lot of times people with traumatic past, they, uh, they tend to easily develop addictive behaviors uh, because they come from that traumatic, painful experience and they have been prone to seek uh, almost like pain-mitigating uh, actions and processes uh, more often than people that haven't had uh, much of traumatic and adverse uh, experiences. 
So going back to, uh, what was it, uh, eternal depths of this question, I like the way my girlfriend gives me a divisive uh, look. I don't understand why my heart skips a bit, and my ex thinks it's how I try to regain control, any insight. So um, I'm not sure if the ex is the girlfriend, or she, this person is kind of, um, kind of using two different words for the same person. Um, so girlfriend or ex, I'm, I'm thinking it's the same person. But uh, basically, what's a derisive look? Something like that ridicules a person, right? Derides a person and, and uh, uh, conceited and uh, contempt. And um, so, and that leads uh, you to almost like it. You know, my heart skips a beat. And so you like it and you, your heart skips a beat. So you get a internal reaction out of it uh, when you are being looked at with division and contempt and ridicule and uh, uh, basically a disapproval. So now, any insight? Any insight to whether or not X is correct in terms of uh, what this has to do with? Like you want to regain control could be, I mean, that is uh, perhaps a strategy, I mean, I can see that happening, uh, that you would be uh, kind of very much subconsciously not wanting to be a target and the victim of that so-called attack. You know, if someone is looking at you with uh, derision and uh, generally uh, other uh, you know, generally in relationships, this is um, there's kind of a protocol, right? Subconsciously, consciously, automatically, people react in a certain predictable way to contempt and to ridicule and so forth. So they don't like it. They they distance themselves from the other person. They uh, even rev revolt against the uh, perpetrator. And so it leads to more of a conflict, promotion, um, you know, uh, a, a, a escalation uh, into toward negative interaction. But this seems to be, in your relationship, it seems to be that you're liking it and even getting excited about it may be a mitigating factor here to, not, I would say, just to gain control, to regain control, gain control, but perhaps also just simply uh, remain grounded and focused and uh, still keep uh, your position of power uh, or equality rather than giving in, rather than having to revolt and impulsively react and or uh, further actually self-victimize. Let's say if the perpetrator, if their uh, girlfriend is the perpetrator then is kind of attacking, assaulting you in this way, or trying to uh, overpower you, psychologically speaking, and you don't want to be uh, victimized by that assault, then uh, you're, not, mm, you're not responding in that predictable way of having been impacted by this assault, but you're uh, responding in a more literally, I would say, either mature, 
and or even manipulative way um, and or even more slick way. So uh, there could be many ways to mm, look at this and interpret this. Uh, we need a lot more information to really literally put our finger on the right answer. But uh, certainly there are some um, notions in terms of uh, the actional, the active, interactional uh, power play uh, in place. And or it can also have a lot of what we call transference, um, uh, tinged type of quality, which is basically something you have grown up with in the past. It's familiar to you. You had to come up with a solution to survive around that type of a contempt and derision in your upbringing. And you naturally gravitate toward, um, you know, dealing with this in the moment in the best way you can in order to uh, simply survive that relationship, survive that attack, survive that, uh, let's say, criticism and uh, uh, possibly assault and, uh, and, and contempt. So, and not uh, be uh, too burdened by it and be able to overcome that situation at moment and continue moving on. So, um, that's really all I can say at this time. Um, I wish you could say more so I can tell you more about that. Uh, Sergio asks, uh, and we are at 6 p.m., so we have two more questions. Uh, let me see. I can really just literally get to one of them for a few minutes as we started about five, ten minutes late. And then we, we keep Natasha's question for next time and after New Year. So Sergio asked, uh, thanks for your help and time. You're welcome. Can someone have, at the same time, symptoms of BPD, borderline, and codependency? Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, even though uh, the concepts of BPD, borderline, uh, or bipolar, I'm thinking that they're referring to. Um, so can someone have borderline and bipolar? Uh, generally, I would say yes. Technically, maybe no. This is a quite uh, controversial and contested uh, proposition that uh, perhaps borderline and BPD are really one and the same. Uh, even though there are some research that shows, for instance, borderline is a little bit different than bipolar. Bipolar has a lot more genetic and neurochemical uh, components to it. So basically hormonal and neurochemical imbalances, even uh, brain, uh, structure and chemistry and uh, organization, neuronal organization, if you will, within the brain, and also genetic factors in terms of heredity uh, versus uh, borderline. So borderline doesn't necessarily have uh, much evidence in terms of neurochemical imbalances as much as bipolar has. And then also we see that medication, for instance, people with bipolar respond more readily to certain medication um, that are mood stabilizers versus borderlines that are would be more effectively helped with antidepressants or SS, actually SSRIs, but only, you know, first one aspect, a couple of aspects of their disorder. And then um, this, at the same time, symptoms of DPD so could it have symptoms of either one of these plus codependency? Yes, and I mean, again, codependency 
really is across the board, whether or not we have disorders, whether or not we have multiple disorders or just one disorder, and regardless of whatever disorder we have, codependency is more or less the, um, an aspect um, of the health of a boundary within relationships. And uh, it's almost like a measurement of the quality of a person's ability to respect boundaries, appreciate, recognize, develop, uh, maintain boundaries between oneself and the other, and irrespective of, mm, of uh, disorders and or even healthy functioning, people uh, can engage in codependent interactions. So, I hope I answered your question, Sergio. Uh, I'm just going to read Natasha's question. We could wrap it up within five minutes, hopefully. If not, then we will postpone it to next year, because it's now the end of December. So, in a few days, it's going to be next year. So, Natasha asked, I recently found out that I have BOD. Uh, BOD, I'm not sure what you mean by BOD. Maybe she mistyped it. BPD or uh, BOD, okay, and it makes sense why you got as angry as I did. I'm going through something traumatic right now, and I don't feel anything. How do I allow myself to feel the full extent of the situation instead of internalizing everything which will lead to get another burst of uncontrollable anger? So I'm guessing probably the BOD, the mistake maybe it's more like a EPD, bipolar, I mean, borderline personality disorder, and perhaps uh, that's why you are also referring to uncontrollable anger. Uh, if that's the case, um, so let me read it again. I recently found out that I have that, and it makes sense. Uh, uh, I'm not going through something traumatic right now and I don't feel anything, I see. How do I allow myself to feel the full? Okay, uh, I see. So basically the idea here is that the person um, is saying like, uh, at times I don't feel anything, and, and other times I have to go kind of to a burst of ang uncontrollable anger um, because they have internalized everything rather than allowing themselves to actually feel the pain and move through that pain even though they may not have had traumatic upbringing or even a currently traumatic situation. So it's more really the hallmark of borderline personality in terms of that emotional dysregulation. This is a quite typical example of a person who is emotionally dysregulated, meaning they have a hard time with dealing with little, um, if you will, uh, feelings of pain, whether it is the disappointments, insults, um, etc., and they, uh, they don't allow themselves to really feel that little pain uh, and they kind of bottle up everything uh, or stay away from things until it's kind of uncontrollable. And then they go full force, so go from zero to 60 in a second. And so that's a good comparison that you're making, Natasha, and, and I think the answer to this really is... Um, uh, to what you mentioned, how to allow yourself to feel the little pains versus large pains uh, is to really practice that with DBT. And that's really a 
uh, perfect solution for this type of a skill building. DBT or dialectical behavioral therapy has uh, you know many centers nowadays have uh, rigorous programs. They engage in 16 week or four months of training uh, uh, taking place once or twice a week. And that's, there have exercises, you know, that where you practice on a weekly basis within a group setting in terms of allowing yourself to realize, uh, you know, kind of grow that, that, those psychological muscles in terms of uh, feeling things, allowing it to happen, uh, building the muscle to deal with it, the psychological muscle to, um, and skill basically to handle those little painful experiences and being able to uh, level the intensity and bring it down to a manageable level. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Therapy Cable Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast provider. To view the entire videos of these episodes, visit us online at therapycable.com and send us an email about your thoughts and topic suggestions. <laughs>